Good morning. Good to see you all today. Glad to be here today. That's good. That's good. Glad to sing praises to Jesus today and get into God's Word together, right? And so it's all worship. Amen? It's all worship. Our lives are all worship. Amen? Today we are in uh, our third week in the series, Great Lives from God's Word. And, uh, and week three, we are in Jesus. We actually are in week, I don't know, whatever it is now. <laughs> what is it? Uh, eight, right? Week eight of our series, nine of our series now, uh, but week three of looking at Jesus' life. Where I told you from the beginning, we're going to learn and read and understand everything there is to know about Jesus' life in these four weeks together talking about Jesus, okay? So you better be, no, I'm not, not really, that's, that's a joke, but uh, we're not able to uh, understand everything in four weeks or get through everything about Jesus in four weeks, and so uh, we get to focus on Him again. Now, this series, it, it, we're going through a few lives in the Bible, uh, in Scripture, which we can learn from uh, as kind of uh, mentors from these lives, mentors from people's lives, right? They can, we can read about their life, we can learn from them, we can grow from the decisions that they made, right or wrong, correct? Because the Bible's not always full of right decisions. How many of us know that? Amen, right? Like sometimes people do dumb things and uh, they're just like us, right? And so uh, now Jesus, on the other hand, he's a little different because his life is perfect, marred by no sin. We just sang that, right? And so uh, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. So his life is perfect. It's a little different than every other life that we're going to be covering uh, in here. Uh, and we have kind of talked about that throughout the last couple of weeks, right? So far, we've covered who was our first person that we talked about? Moses, right? For three weeks talking about Moses. Then we jumped to talking about who? David for three weeks. And, uh, and then two weeks of talking about Jesus. The first week, does anybody remember what we focused in on? His kind of Jesus, the, the child, his human life, right? And, uh, and then last week, what did we talk about? Jesus, the teacher or rabbi. That's right. And so today we move on um, and we are talking about our focus today in Jesus' life is Jesus, the substitute. Jesus the substitute. Next week we will end uh, on Jesus the King is what we'll be focusing on uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. Um, and so we're talking about Jesus the substitute. This is an important, uh, it's important to understand this. And, uh, and so, you know, some people aren't necessarily, they don't necessarily understand this, or maybe they have a, a view that is a little bit skewed on this. And so we're going to kind of come back and we're going to talk about Jesus being our substitute. Now, substitution is a major theme in scriptures, okay? And it really began uh, in the Garden of Eden, right? There's Adam and Eve. They had our first parents uh, sinned and knew they were naked, right? This is what Scripture says, right? When they sinned and they disobeyed God in that initial act, the Scripture says that they knew they were naked, and they were what? Ashamed, right? They hid from Him, right? And so they were ashamed, and God then, in His kindness and mercy, did what to cover them? 
He killed an animal because he covered them with the animal's skin, right? And so God covered them, killing an animal, covering them with this animal's skin. So we see the first picture presented of a substitute, right? This animal's life for Adam and Eve to be covered. In Exodus 12, we see that God gave instructions for the Hebrew people to prepare for the coming judgment uh, on Egypt by smearing what on their doorpost? Blood of a lamb on their doorpost, right? This would be the sign, uh, and, then, and then God would pass over their homes, and uh, the judgment would not strike against that home because of that uh, blood that's smeared on the doorpost. So the lambs that were killed uh, to use their blood on the doorpost were a substitute for the firstborn of any home, right? The firstborn of every family, uh, whether that be human or animal or anything, right? That's what scriptures tell us. Then he continues on by giving the Hebrew people the Mosaic law, right? If we carry on in scriptures, we see that the Hebrew people were given the Mosaic law uh, when they were in the wilderness, and its requirements of the sacrificial system and how to be made right with God. We see that he gives them this uh, system, right? And so through the sacrifice of a goat as the sin offering, uh, they had this required substitute, right? This, that was the required substitute was a goat for the sin offering uh, because they were completely unable to achieve holiness on their own, right? That's what the Scriptures tell us. Exodus 29 and Numbers 29 both kind of talk about this. By sacrificing this innocent goat on the Day of Atonement, uh, which is talked about in Leviticus 16, if you want to go back and read about that later, uh, it was Day of Atonement was once a year, as according to God's specifications, their sins could be forgiven. The sins of the nation on the Day of Atonement could be forgiven uh, by this sin offering, right? And the animal died in the sinner's place and dealt with the sin problem between humanity, right, and a holy God. God is holy. Leviticus 16 tells us also about a second goat, right? You ever read about this? Anybody like Leviticus? Read it for light reading sometimes, right? You pull out the Bible. I want to go to Leviticus today. Said nobody ever, right? But, <clears throat> but it's good and it's meaningful and it has great purpose, right? So sometimes you just have to put your head down and get through it and, and find those gems that are in it and, and see the bigger picture uh, with Leviticus as a piece to it. And so, uh, and so there's a second goat in Leviticus 16. What's the name of that second goat? The scapegoat, right? The scapegoat, which uh, the priest would lay hands on, right? And, and in doing so, symbolically transfer the sins of the people to the goat. And the goat would be set free in the wilderness far, far away from the encampment, right? right? Far away from the people. And so that goat would symbolically take the sins of the people, of the Hebrew people, far away and on that one day, right? So it'd be released while the other one gave its life 
uh, and then its blood on the Day of Atonement was poured on top of the ark on what's called the mercy seat. And if you ever want to read some really, really interesting stuff, go read about the mercy seat, okay? Uh, it was the lid of the ark between the cherubim, right? It was the place where God's Spirit resided. Go read about it. It's fascinating, and uh, it, it'll give you a deeper understanding. And so that's what would happen on this Day of Atonement, right? So, acceptable sacrifices, these animals had to be what? Spotless, right? They had, to be, uh, they had to be animals that were basically perfect. They were spotless. They were raised for this. They were unblemished animals uh, for the sacrificial system on this uh, day and place, specifically. Now, hence, when God's plan unfolded for the new and more perfect covenant, right, because the old covenant was what of, of the new covenant? The Bible says it was a shadow, right, a shadow of a better covenant that was to come. So these things were done, and they were pictures of what would eventually become the perfect covenant, which is the new covenant. So when God's plan unfolded for the new and more perfect covenant, there was only one way to perfectly satisfy this requirement. And that meant that God himself would have to take care of this problem, right? Because we couldn't look around and find enough good things that would be perfect to sacrifice to make things right, because that doesn't exist. And so God himself had to take care of the problem. And so at just the right time, God sent his son, right, of himself from heaven to fulfill this requirement and lay down his life as the final and perfect sacrifice for all time, which Hebrews 9.28 talks about. He was the perfect sacrifice, unblemished, right? And so one of the things that we need to understand, and uh, I've talked about this before, we need to understand it Again, today, it's something that we should reiterate all the time uh, in our thinking is that Jesus didn't get hijacked to be our sacrifice, right? Sometimes people think, wow, these horrible things happened to Jesus, and it was just, it probably took him by surprise, right? Uh, he didn't get hijacked, right? It was no surprise to Jesus that this was going to happen, that this was going to take place. In fact, in John 10, 18, uh, Jesus said, no one takes it from me, his life, from me, but I lay it down on my own accord, right? I lay it down on my own accord. And he says, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He says, nobody snuck my life away from me. Nobody snuffed it out unknowingly to me or to the Father, right? I willingly laid it down. And so Jesus knew uh, what was coming. Jesus knew what was coming, and he knew that it was the plan that was laid out uh, from before the foundations of the earth were laid. He knew this was the plan, right? There's a Scottish theologian named James Denny, and he writes this, Christ's death is not an incident of his life. It is the aim of it. The laying down of his life is not an accident in his career, but his vocation. In it, the divine purpose of his life is revealed. He came to die. Okay? We have to know that. 
He came as a perfect sacrifice to die. Because the sin problem had to be dealt with, right? There ain't enough animals that, are, that we could sacrifice in order to make ourselves right. And so he came, and it was the aim of his life to die, to be that sacrifice. So, if you're still saying, did he really know? Thank you for asking. We're going to take a look here at uh, how many times we see Jesus clearly talk to his disciples about this very thing, okay? And there's more than this, but these, you don't get any more clear than these, okay? So, so here we go. Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9 all uh, talk about this same thing, right? Jesus had just fed this great crowd, and Peter had just made his statement that Jesus is the Messiah, and we are in all three synoptic gospels, we see the same account. And if you don't know what synoptic means, that's fine. I'm going to explain it to you right now, okay? Synoptic means with a common view. So when you hear somebody talk about the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they cover the same things, the life of Jesus and the same events with a common view. And so John, if you've ever read it, it is a gospel, but it's different in its feel and in its writing and in the things that it covers, okay? And so John is a gospel, but it's more of a standalone gospel. That's where Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels, okay? So in Mark 8, 31, here's what it reads. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. That's pretty clear, okay? Like, that's pretty clear. And this, then, is where Peter takes him aside and reprimands him for saying such terrible things, right? And how did that work out for Peter? Uh, he was called Satan, okay? He says, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have the things of God in mind. You're thinking about your own stuff, right? You're thinking about how man thinks. So right after he, tells, he lays it out, Peter says, hey, I don't think you should be talking about that, buddy, you know? Well, that didn't work out well. Then we read uh, in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9, this happens again. Right after Jesus heals a demon-possessed man, he states in Mark 9, 31, the Son of Man is going to, betray, to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later, he will rise from the dead. That's pretty clear again, okay? And this is right before the disciples argue about who among them is going to be the greatest. Are you catching a theme here? <laughs> it's uh, after we read the next one and talk about it, you'll catch the theme for sure. All right, so here Jesus again tells them this very clear statement, and, and then on the road they're walking and they're arguing about who's the greatest among them. Hmm, okay. The third time in Matthew 20 and Mark 10 and Luke 18, that's where this is covered in those synoptic gospels, Jesus describes this again right after the encounter with the rich young man or the rich young ruler. Remember that encounter that he had? And so I'll read it out of Mark. Mark 10, 33 and 34 reads, uh, Jesus states this to his disciples. 
We're going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and teachers of the religious law, and they will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Now, in typical disciple fashion here, immediately following this statement, James and John, uh, they, they come to Jesus and they make a request. And their request is that they want to sit on the left and right side of his throne in the kingdom, right? They want to be recognized. They want to have power and be recognized as such. And so all three times, Jesus tells the disciples straight up what's going to happen. Straight up, how it's going to work out, how everything's going to happen. And the very next thing in all three of these instances that the disciples do is, are the most human things that we can imagine doing, right? He tells, he tells them what's going to happen. And every time, all three of these times, they're thinking about themselves, <laughs> right? About gaining power, about uh, being the greatest, uh, about how to reprimand Jesus for the things that he is saying. And so I would say that if ever we see the need for a substitute for us as humans, these instances very well might show it the most. Jesus speaks the truth and they miss it and only focus on themselves. Pretty much shows a need for a substitute, amen? Jumping ahead a bit, when they, they get to Jerusalem, we see the final week of Jesus' life on earth, right? This is known as the Passion Week, and in fact, this coming week is the Passion Week. Uh, and, and so there are, are so many things that happen, but some, just briefly, some key events include Palm Sunday, which would have been today when Jesus entered. We celebrate when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Um, he entered on a cult that nobody had ever riven, ridden, fulfilling prophecy, uh, you know, Monday, Jesus cleanses the temple. Tuesday is the Olivet Discourse, right, in found, found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, right? And what, where was that given? On what mount? There you go, the Olivet Discourse, Mount of Olives. See, there, okay. Uh, and Judas that day makes his deal to betray Jesus. Thursday, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, right? They uh, we see them eating together at the Last Supper, and then ultimately Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And then Friday morning we see Jesus standing trial, right? We see him standing trial. Now, a lot of times people think it's just one trial that takes place there, um, and maybe, maybe that's what you've thought. Uh, but there are actually six different trials or, or uh, parts to this trial, if you, if you would, uh, that he had to endure that morning, okay? Trial number one, he was before Annas, the high priest from 6 to 15 AD. And you can find that trial in John 18. We just don't have time to go through everything today. Uh, so you're going to have to do some reading and some homework on your own, okay? Everybody like homework in here? Okay. Trial number two, or the second piece to this, was he was brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, uh, who was the high priest from 18 to 36 AD. You find that in uh, Matthew, Mark, and John. And here he was declared guilty of blasphemy. 
by the Sanhedrin, okay? Trial number three uh, before the Sanhedrin, uh, at dusk, Jesus is condemned and turned over to the Romans, right? And you can find that in Mark 15 and Luke 22. Then there's the fourth piece to this trial, where he was sent to, Rome, uh, to the Romans and he came before Pilate, right, who was the Roman governor uh, from 26 to 36 A.D. And here he is declared not guilty, right, and sent to Herod Antipas, which is found in all four Gospels. So, trial five, right, before Herod Antipas, the governor of Galilee from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D., Jesus was mocked. He was mistreated and returned to Pilate to make a decision. And you can find that in Luke chapter 23. Now, the final portion of this trial, uh, if you want to call it that, right, whatever this is that's going on here, before Pilate once again, and this time Pilate is bullied into a decision, right? He is pressed into making a decision that really he didn't want to make because he'd already found this guy not guilty. Like, I heard it all, I hear what you're saying, I find him not guilty, but he gets sent back to him, right? And so he gives one last chance for Jesus to be saved, right? Because he really doesn't want this, he doesn't want Jesus to be crucified. He finds him not guilty, but here they are, and so he offers up a choice to the crowd, right? He offers up a choice to the crowd, and, and he says, listen, I can either release Jesus or I can release Barabbas. Barabbas is a guilty murderer. Jesus, he's already found not guilty. He gives this, this choice to the crowd. And the people yelled for the condemned murderer, Barabbas, to be released and for Jesus himself to be crucified. You can find that account in all four Gospels as well. But let me ask you again, right? We can see that and we can say, man, if this just would have happened or if this just would have happened or if Pilate would have just, you know, been stronger, you know, because the Scripture there says that Pilate wanting to please the crowd, right? That's the reason that he finally said, okay, Pilate wanting to please the crowd. So here he was, and all he wanted to do was pacify the crowd or please the crowd, and so he finally gives in. And so we could say, man, if Pilate just would have been stronger dummy, right? Or, you know, if, you know, whatever. We could come up with all kinds of if scenarios. But again, I ask you, was any of this a surprise to Jesus, <laughs> right? I just read you three times that he specifically said, this is what's going to happen. So it didn't take him by surprise. It didn't take God by surprise. This is why Jesus came, right? To be the substitute that we could never be a spotless lamb to satisfy the debt of sin. Now, I want to give you a theological term uh, this morning, and it's the penal substitutionary atonement, okay? That's a long, long, you know, uh, theological term here. But I think it's good for us to know what it is, all right? And I think all of us in here are smart enough we can handle this and we can learn these things and write them down if not and then go back and look at them later. All right, so penal substitutionary atonement, right? Penal means related to a punishment of offenses, right? Related to a punishment of offenses. Substitution, the act of a person taking the place of another. 
atonement. Atonement could be described, and this is the easiest way to remember it for me too, is at one meant. At one meant. Or the state of being at one or being reconciled. So altogether, what this theological term points to is Jesus paying the debt for sin that we deserve to pay, but he steps in and he substitutes himself in our place in order that we may have at oneness with God. How great is that? How amazing is that? Now, the main verse that we see this idea in is in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5.21. And I'm going to read it from the J.B. Phillips paraphrase Bible. I kind of like that one. Uh, it says, For God caused Christ, who himself knew nothing of sin, actually to be sin for our sakes, so that in Christ we might be made good with the goodness of God. That's the only way. So what did it accomplish for those of us who believe, right? And, and, and I'm going to throw out a few shun words, okay? Theological terms, right? I, we, can, we can learn this stuff today. We can pick it up. These are a few shun words. I don't know if you have any favorite shun words, but my, one of my favorite shun words is distortion, <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's one of my favorite uh, shun words. But let me tell you, the ones that we're going to read today are far superior to distortion. Maybe you have a favorite shun word too. But when we repent of sin, turning to God through Christ's work on the cross, we re receive regeneration. Regeneration is this word that we should know as believers, it's an instant and supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the nature of the individual who turns to Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. John 5.24, we read that those who turn to Christ have passed from what to what? From death to life, right? Regeneration a work of the Holy Spirit. He makes us new, right? Justification, right? I remember in our life group, we had a really great conversation about this word, justification, right? It's the act of, great, of God's grace whereby he declares righteous the person who repents of sin and places faith in Jesus Christ as their substitute and Savior. God declares us righteous not because we're innocent, but because our debt has been fully paid and Christ's righteousness is put into our account. Thank God, right? This is the main issue. If you are into the Reformation, which I've been into lately and reading about it, this is the main issue that Martin Luther, it really helped him because he was always thinking, how can I get to heaven? How can I do enough? How do I know if it's enough? And then he read in Romans about justification and that justification comes through faith alone, right? Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how it works. So Christ's work on the cross for those who repent and believe, right? Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, right? What that brings is justification, a new and right standing with God. Well, another shun word that we should know is reconciliation, right? Reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, the word reconciliation is written five times, right? It's in there five times. 
And as we are reconciled to God, Paul writes that we also have the ministry of reconciliation, to plead with people to be reconciled to God. And then lastly, the last shun word we'll talk about today is adoption. Adoption. This is the act whereby God places as sons and daughters those who receive Christ and then receive the privileges of being a son or daughter. Right? Now, we don't merely become His servant, right? We become His children. We become heirs to all that is His. And this is why we can say that we are children of God, which not everyone can claim. And I understand, I've talked about this before, I understand it's well-meaning. People say, everybody, we're all children of God. We're all made in the image of God. But you're not a child of God until you've been regenerated through the work of Christ and you are adopted into His family. That's how we become children of God. That's, according to Scripture, how it works. Not according to what I want to believe, but about how Scripture describes it and tells me it is. So, those in Christ can firmly say, I am a son or daughter of the living God. Now, at Jesus' last trial, briefly here to end, uh, there's an account that takes place. Uh, in, I told you about that, that trial. In the last trial, there's an account that takes place. Right? Pilate gives a decision right, to the people. Do you want me to release Jesus, the king of the Jews, right? so he says, or do you want me to release Barabbas, the convicted murderer? And the people say Barabbas, right? And so Jesus then is sent to the place of the skull or to Golgotha to be crucified, even though he's innocent. And even though he's innocent and he's sent to be crucified, Barabbas, who is guilty, gets to what? He gets to walk free. Now, now there's a, a connection of some sort that I think we should make, that every one of us, in some way, shape, or form, is as Barabbas was, right? And yet Jesus comes in and substitutes himself to pay the penalty of sin that I can be free and that you could be free. And we should all be able to see ourselves in Barabbas to some extent. And I wouldn't press that too far, but I will say we should all be able to look at that and say, that's like me. Because even though I deserve that, Jesus came in, laid down his life, was the substitute. And all I got to do is confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And scriptures in Romans 10, 9 says, you will be saved. Now, believe doesn't mean, eh, okay, maybe I'll believe. Believe means you better, like, you're all in, right? So go study that word before you just think, well, if I just say something, I'm good. Right? Like, study that word. Know what it means. But if I confess that and believe in my heart that He is my substitute, I can be saved today. I can be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. I can have, be justified before God in right standing. I can be reconciled to Him. 
and ultimately adopted into his family and an heir of all that is his. That's good news, my friends. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming and, and your purpose of coming to be our substitute and to make the way for us to be able to be reconciled to God. We are so grateful. God, our lives, we, we do say, uh, our lives, we want to pour them out for you. We want to give them to you uh, because of what you've done for us and how you made the first move for us. God, our response is to, is to love you and live for you. We're grateful that we can be reconciled to a holy and good God through you, Jesus. Thank you. God, I pray that if any, any heart here be, near, be uh, far from you, God, that you draw them near, draw them near to yourself through the power of your Holy Spirit, God. That there would be a surrender to you today, maybe like there hasn't been in the past. And even just hearing, uh, hearing all that you've done would draw every one of us closer to you, but specifically uh, the one who maybe uh, hasn't uh, known you as Savior and Lord. Uh, Lord. So God, would you do that today, we ask. work on the hearts and minds of each of us here, Lord, to know you more and more, to become more and more like you, to surrender more and more to you. And so we ask that you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit in us, God, each and every day, starting today even, Lord. So we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Clint. I want to thank you for joining us today for this podcast, and I hope it was beneficial for you. Our vision at Family Life Church is simple, to create a safe and authentic environment for people to encounter Jesus. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, please don't hesitate to send us an email at admin at myflc.org or connect with us via social media on Facebook or Instagram at Family Life Church Newburgh. We'd enjoy hearing from you. Again, thank you for listening today and God bless you as you pursue Him.